Well, I want to welcome you uh, today, uh, those who are here at our 9.30 service, as well as those who are uh, in the cafe. Uh, you can't see me yet. There I am. <laughs> uh, I want to especially welcome you if you're a first-time guest with us. Uh, we appreciate you being here. Pray that you are blessed by your participation uh, in worship today. We are continuing a series we started last week uh, called Rooted. Uh, we're looking at where we are rooted uh, as the First United Methodist Church of Mansfield. And we are doing this as uh, delegates from around the world prepare to gather at the end of this month for what's called General Conference. Uh, that is the main legislative body of the global denomination that is the United Methodist Church of which we are a part of. Uh, they'll be gathering for what, uh, a called session of the General Conference uh, to deal with issues related to human sexuality. And since I know that probably raises some questions for you, I wanted to provide a, uh, an opportunity for you to gather in a, a town hall environment to uh, share those questions. And so starting today at 3 p.m., uh, we'll have two on Wednesday and another one next Sunday at 3 p.m. Uh, we'll have those gatherings. Each of those will be in our chapel. Uh, I will have a, a presentation for you. And again, it's a place for you to ask any questions that you may have. We want to ensure that you feel well informed uh, about what General Conference uh, will be doing at the end of the month and also uh, that you have, have an opportunity to ask any question. And my job, what I'm going to try to do, is to answer as many questions as I can with a response other than I don't know. Uh, though there will be many questions that I will say, I don't know. So uh, again, this afternoon, next Sunday afternoon, and then two opportunities on Wednesday, 11 a.m. after our pastor's Bible study, and then 6.30 p.m., uh, all of those taking place uh, in the chapel. Now that's what's on the periphery of this series, but it's not the purpose of this series. The purpose of this series is to look at five aspects uh, of early Methodism, the 18th century movement uh, led by John Wesley and his brother Charles uh, that gave birth to uh, uh, what we now know of as Methodism. Uh, and so we're looking at five aspects of that. Uh, I said to you last week that I understand not everyone shares the same level of, of affection for history as, as I do. If you do, by the way, if you are someone who uh, appreciates that, I do want to note in your bulletin uh, that this uh, August, uh, our bishop, Bishop Mike Lowry and myself will be leading a trip to England, uh, a Wesleyan heritage tour to visit uh, the sites uh, related to Wesley's life and to uh, get a first hand uh, have a first hand experience of, uh, of of the movement of methodism if you want to join us for that but some of you I know you may think oh, this that's not me but but let me tell you uh, again why I think uh, a series like this is is so important because history is what shapes our identity and not only does history shape our identity uh, it's our identity which defines our future trajectory in other words when we are deficient in our history uh, we cannot help but lose a sense of our identity. And the loss of identity is what obscures our future trajectory. In other words, if you don't know who you are, you don't know where to go. You don't know what next step you need to take in your life. But when you have a sense of who you are, when you have a strong sense of uh, your identity, the distinctiveness of who you are and what you want your life to be about, it becomes much clearer what the next step is you need to take, where it is that you want to go in your life. And so we're looking at our history in order to strengthen our sense of identity and to help us see our future trajectory as well. 
Wesley uh, was dedicated in his life. Uh, his life was all about bringing renewal so that the church in which he was baptized and his faith was formed. And that was the Anglican Church, the Church of England. He was a priest in the Anglican Church. Uh, his passion was about restoring the vitality of that church, a church that he believed had lost its story, had, uh, was struggling with their sense of identity, and, and therefore didn't know where it was going. Wesley's uh, ambition was never to start a new denomination, a new church. He hoped to bring renewal within the Anglican Church. In fact, the denomination of Methodism, it didn't really start till after Wesley's death. Because everyone who was a part of the movement knew that Wesley really didn't want that. And so they waited till after he died and, and, and then began uh, uh, the, the new denomination that was, uh, that was the Methodist Church. Uh, but as we look at, uh, at his story and what his life was about, we, we also know that Wesley was a part of a, a movement that was really much larger than him, a dramatic change that happened all across Europe and also here in America, what they referred to as the New World at that time. And that movement was called uh, the First Great Awakening. It was a revival, a renewal in churches all across Europe, uh, here in America, and Wesley and Methodism was one component of that. It wasn't the largest movement within the Great Awakening, and Wesley wasn't the most well-known or dynamic preachers uh, who were working at that particular time. And yet, Methodism and the works of Wesley really had uh, the most long-term impact on the church. And today we want to look at why that, why that was. What was it that was unique about Methodism and, and, and Wesley's uh, ministry that allowed it to have the impact that it did in his own time, uh, but also the long-term impact that it had, not only in Europe, but also here in America. Uh, one of the most famous, well-known, dynamic preachers at the time was a man named George Whitfield. Whitfield was 10 years younger than Wesley. Uh, and he was the one who actually talked uh, John into joining him in what he called field preaching. We'll talk more about what that was in the final week of this series. But Whitfield was a trained actor who came to faith in Christ and became a preacher. And he very quickly became known for the dramatic presentation of the gospel that he shared throughout his preaching. Some of you heard of the name Benjamin Franklin. Anybody heard of Benjamin Franklin? What you may not know about Benjamin Franklin is Benjamin Franklin was not a religious person. He was very skeptical of religion, a, a man who was really driven by science. But whenever Whitfield was nearby, Franklin would always go to hear him simply because he was so entertained by Whitfield and his preaching. Thousands came out to hear Whitfield over the course of his ministry. But, but near the end of his ministry, as we, he reflected on his life and, and he thought about the impact of his life and his ministry in relationship to his friend John, with what we can hear as a bit of regret, this is, this is how he understood the difference between the impact of his life and his ministry and the impact of Wesley's. Uh, he said, my brother Wesley acted wisely the souls that were awakened under his ministry, he joined to societies and thus preserved the fruits of his labor. This I neglected, and my people are a rope of sand. So we're talking about what, Wesley, uh, what Whitfield meant by this idea that Wesley joined those souls awakened under his ministry, what, that he joined them to societies, 
And in that, we'll see why the, the, those who, again, uh, came to faith under Wesley's ministry, why they became known as the people uh, called Methodists. Uh, but first, what I want to invite you to do is to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. If you didn't bring your Bible with you, you'll find Philippians 1 on page 1822 in the Bibles that we have available for you in all of our worship spaces. Before we look at Wesley's life and Wesley's ministry, we're going to first look at the first great evangelist of the faith, the Apostle Paul. We're going to listen to how Paul expresses this life of faith, something that Wesley learned and, and, and modeled uh, his ministry after uh, the way Paul lived this out in his own life in the first century. So I'm going to read you some passages from both chapter 1 and chapter 2. I'd love to read you both chapters in its entirety, but we don't have time. So we'll begin with chapter 1, verse 3, and Paul says this. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So notice with me first that Paul speaks about a good work. A good work that has started in Philippi. Paul started this church. The Christians who are receiving this letter were those whom Paul knew. And he talks about the good work that has started. A good work that he says God over the course of your life will bring to completion. Then in verse 9 Paul gets more specific. He tells them exactly what he's been praying. He says this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So there's a good work that started, Paul says. It's begun and God he trusts over the course of their lives that God is going to complete this work. He says, this is what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you will grow. And specifically, I'm praying that you will grow in love because Paul believes that as we grow in love, something happens in our life. There is a change that comes into our life as we grow in knowledge and depth of insight, understanding in a deeper, fuller way the love of God, the love of Christ in our life. If you jump with me to chapter 2, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends... As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. So a couple of things I want to point out to you in this passage, particularly verse 14 and verse 15. Uh, Paul says, I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's verse 12, actually. And then we get to uh, later in the passage, he says, do everything without arguing or grumbling 
so that you may become blameless and pure children of God. And some of you may think to yourself, well, I thought that already happened. I thought that's what, I thought that's what happened when I was baptized. I thought when I started this life of faith that this, this already happened. I thought I was done. I mean, I was baptized and the preacher said, your sins have been washed clean. You are done. You are taken care of. Everything is now fine. The preacher that baptized you didn't just put a little bit of water on your head. I mean, he took you all the way down and he brought you all the way up. And when he brought you all the way up, he told you, I held you down just a few extra seconds to make sure that this all this worked. You're clean. You're good. You're all taken care of. But then you have here these words from Paul. He says, continue to work out your salvation. Well, what does that mean? So that you may become blameless. Again, I thought, I thought that already occurred. Blameless and pure children of God. What exactly does, does Paul mean? Well, last week we talked about Wesley's convictions that all need to be saved, all can be saved, all may know they are saved, and all can be saved to the uttermost. We talked about being saved to the uttermost as being set free by the power of the Spirit from the grip that sin has over your life. So as you think about this word salvation and what Paul says about working out your salvation, here's how Wesley would have described that. He would describe this in two different aspects. He would have talked about that, that in this salvation work, the work of God saving your life, what happens first is that you are set free from the guilt of sin. That's what happens when you come to faith in Christ. You are set free from the guilt of sin. And as you progress in this life, this, this, by the way, was what Wesley called justification. This is where we are set right, brought back into proper alignment, proper relationship with God. This is justifying grace. But Wesley also talked about that over the course of your life, the good work that starts, that God completes in your life, is being delivered from the power that sin has over your life. This, Wesley described as sanctification or growing in holiness. That this was a one-time event and this was something that happened over the course of your life. We said last week that Wesley believed that the Christian life was a calling to live a holy life. But here was the wisdom of Wesley. This was, this was what Whitfield saw in him that he recognized was lacking in his own ministry and the way in which he conveyed the Christian faith to those who came out to hear him preach. Wesley believed that holiness must be pursued. That you couldn't just wait for something magical to happen in your life and you would be set free from the power of sin in your life. There were those at the time who believed that. All you were supposed to do was just wait. And Wesley said, no, the life, the life of holiness is something that you must pursue. It must become the singular pursuit of your life, Wesley argued. It should be the singular aim of your life. It should be the driving passion of your life to pursue a life that is holy and pleasing to God. 
And there was a particular method that Wesley employed to help those who were awakened under his ministry to pursue holiness in their life. So real quickly, real quickly, let me tell you three things about that movement. The first thing I want to tell you about is the gathering of what Wesley described as societies. And essentially what this was was a worship service. This is what we would think of today as coming together in worship and included singing and included the proclamation of the word. It also included Holy Communion. Receiving Holy Communion was one of the early marks of the Methodist movement in the Anglican Church at the time. They received communion three times a year, Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. Wesley believed that you should receive communion on a regular basis. And so in the first group of, uh, of people who were part of this movement, uh, while John and Charles were students at Oxford, they received communion every single week. So that's what the society gathering was. It was essentially a, a worship gathering. You think of 40 to 50, maybe 100 to 150 people gathering together for worship. But here was the catch. You could only get into the society, if you did something else first. The first step was connecting with a class meeting. Class meeting was essentially a small group. That's how we would describe it today. About 10 to 12 people, both men and women, were a part of these class meetings group, class meeting groups. And at the end of the class meeting, your leader would give you a ticket. And that ticket was what you had to have in order to gain entrance into gathering of the society. If you didn't have the ticket, you couldn't come in. They said, nope, you didn't do your class meeting this week. You cannot come to the gathering of the society. Which may sound crazy, but here was the idea behind this. Wesley believed that Christians needed to regularly gather together at this level in the class meeting, it was in the level of the class meeting that, that Wesley said people were taken care of, no one was left out. In his words, it was at the level of the class meeting uh, that Methodists watched over one another in love. And at the class meeting, the, the, the whole focus of the class meeting was everyone responding to this question, how is it with your soul? Or in Wesley's language, the 18th century language, how does, thou, how does thou soul prosper? I don't know if that's exactly how. How does your soul prosper? That was the question. And the expectation was that everyone responded to that question. Now you didn't have to every week say, man, I've got this amazing revelation I need to share with you. You didn't have to have anything great to share, but Wesley believed that Christians should regularly get together and that they should get together for a specific purpose, not just to watch the Super Bowl, not just to make small talk about their lives, talk about their kids, hey, what's going on? Not just to, some of you may fall out of your seats, but not, not even just to have a covered dish dinner. That, that wasn't the idea of the class. It was to articulate to one another where they were, what they were experiencing in their relationship with God. That they needed to talk about that. And that was a requirement in order to be a part of the society gathering. And then within this, there was another level. Uh, this was not mandatory, but it was strongly encouraged, something called band meetings. Band meetings were divided by genders, about uh, anywhere from three to five people. 
And then band meeting, again, an additional thing that you were invested in. If you were in a band meeting, you were still in a class meeting. Many of the class meeting leaders were in a band meeting. And rather than focusing on one question, the people in the band meeting focused on five questions. Everyone responded to these five questions. What known sins have you committed since our last meeting? What temptations have you met with? And number three here, this is exactly how it reads, and I need some English teacher to make a a ruling here, because this sounds wrong to me, but how was you delivered? It, It should be how were you delivered, I think, but that's how it's written, so I put it on the screen like that. What have you thought, said, or done of which you doubt whether it be a sin or not? In other words, is there anything that's sorta on the line that we need to talk about? And then the final question, have you nothing you desire to keep secret? In other words, have you been honest with how you have responded to these first four questions? Now this weekend our goal is to start 100 new band meetings. So who's in? Anybody? (laughs) Want to sign up? Not going to be a lot of action at that table in the back, I'm guessing. I mean some you may think, wow, this is intense. And if you find yourself thinking that, you're getting, a, you're getting an understanding of who John Wesley was. <laughs> he was an intense guy. The Apostle Paul was an intense guy. Uh, it was, this was a high expectation movement. Uh, and, and you may even find yourself thinking, this is completely unrealistic in terms of expectations today. I mean, there was no TV back then. There was no video games. Fortnite was not invented yet. They had all this time. What else were they going to do, Right? That's why they invested in all this stuff. But, but before we dismiss this and just say, wow, this is crazy. This is, this is 18th century stuff. It's not, it's not for today. Let me, let me just invite you to pause for a moment and, and consider this. Imagine with me that you had the opportunity to sit down for a one-on-one conversation with Jesus. Uh, there's a... There's a interaction at the end of, uh, of John's gospel. This is after the resurrection of Jesus where Jesus and his disciple Peter get to have one of these one-on-one conversations right on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. You might just picture yourself there with Jesus. And over the course of that conversation, Jesus asks you this question. What can I do for you? What would you say? I mean, this is Jesus. He's standing right in front of you, and he asks you this question. What can I do for you? Would you say, Jesus, I, I need you to set, set me free from this guilt. It's overwhelming. I don't like it. I want, I want you to take it away. Or would you say, Jesus, I need you to deliver me from the power the grip that sin has over my life, the things I end up doing that I know harm myself and harm others, which would it be? Would you ask Jesus to cure you of your symptoms or would you ask him to heal you of your disease? And for the Apostle Paul and for John Wesley, this is how, this is how you were delivered from the power, the grip that sin has over your life. The way it happened was you grow in love made available by grace. 
That's how it happens. You grow in love made available by grace. And it's this final word here, grace, that is really why Methodism exploded. It grew substantially not only in the lifetime of John Wesley, but continued to expand in tremendous ways long after his earthly life came to an end. It's because of grace and because of the way in which grace was understood. Because here's one of the most common misconceptions of the Christian life. The most common misconception is that grace is a thing. That grace is a commodity that you can somehow acquire in your life. That you can somehow get this thing called grace. You can even perhaps store it up in your life, keep it for a rainy day when you know you're gonna need a lot of it. Somehow you get this thing called grace and you're able to have it in your life and then you can able, uh, you're able in some ways to play the grace card, if you will, whenever you need it because you've acquired it in your life. Wesley used the term means of grace to describe some of the practices and disciplines of the Christian life. And many misunderstand that as the things that you do in order to get the thing that is grace. But it is not an it. Grace is not a thing. Grace is a person. Grace is the person of God revealed to us in Christ who dwells within us by the Spirit. That's what grace is. Grace is a person. It's the person of God revealed in Christ dwelling within us by the Spirit. And so the method that Wesley employed, the idea of Christians gathering together to simply articulate what was going on in their life with God, to study the scriptures, to invest in the discipline of a prayer life, to receive Holy Communion, to serve the poor, to be engaged in real relationship with one another, all of these things were not things that you did in order to acquire the thing that is Grace, all of these were practices that opened your eyes to the God who was at work in your life. It was the way in which Methodists experienced a revelation in an ongoing way of God's presence in their life and the power of the Spirit in their life. It was raising their awareness of God's presence among them, experienced in their relationship with one another, because grace isn't a thing. Grace is the person, the person of God revealed in Christ, dwelling within us by the power of the Spirit. So Methodism, you can't reduce it down to a certain list of practices. You can't say that Methodism was just 10 steps to a holy life, check them off the box and you're good. Instead, it was an ongoing pursuit of holiness within a community of Christians who were sharing life together in a very intentional way, together growing in their commitment to God, their commitment to one another, their commitment to building God's kingdom, and all along the way becoming more aware of God's presence and the power of God's spirit in their life. 
It is true that when you are baptized and when you start the life of faith, you are set free from the guilt of sin. It means that when God looks at you, what he sees is Jesus. And the guilt of sin, you've been set free from that. But here's something, here's a quote I heard early on in my ministry that I've never forgotten. You can believe all the right things and still be miserable. Because being set free from the guilt of sin is not the same thing as being set from the power and the grip that sin has over your life. And that's what Wesley understood. And that's what the Apostle Paul meant as he talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. He talks about becoming blameless and pure as you grow in knowledge and depth of insight as you grow in love. And it may sound crazy to us. It may sound really intimidating. It may sound like something that we don't want to be a part of. If we were to say next week, you got to have a ticket to get in. Well, there would probably be fewer people here. But I wonder what our impact would be. And if it's true that history shapes our identity, if it's true that history shapes us and should form us and define for us the way forward, then perhaps, dear friends, perhaps we have much to learn about what it means to grow in holiness and what it was that gave birth to the church that we love, the faith that we share, the life that we live together. Let's pray. Loving God, we continue to pray this prayer that you would wake us up, that you would stir us from our slumber, that you would give us a vision of what our life might be. That we, Lord, would not be satisfied by simply being set free from the guilt of sin, but that, Lord, we would pursue a life of holiness, a life that would free us from the misery of its power and grip over our life. Lord, I pray that prayer for every single person who's a part of this family of faith. I pray, Lord, that you would set them free from that bondage. I pray that prayer for me, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would do that together. That we would be so confident of your love and your presence among us that we would be able to share with one another about our relationship with you. That we would even, Lord, be so bold as to be willing to confess the way in which we're struggling in our life and receive in the life of another the words that we know you are seeking to speak into our own lives, those words of love, forgiveness, reminder that a new day is always a second chance. Lord, thank you for the roots of our faith, for our history. And we pray that it would continue to shape who we are and where we might go. All these things we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.